You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Good morning, friends. Welcome to church. Okay, so today's sermon text is from um, three different passages. The first one is Exodus 14, verses 5 through 13, and then chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and then chapter 15 still, verses 11 through 13. So I think for you guys, it is delineated per chapter. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea beside Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. The Pharaoh approached, and the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Thank you, Chad, for that uh, gracious introduction. Um, I will say that the reason most people stayed at our growth group was not because of me, but because of my wife here. If you've had the pleasure of meeting her, you know how kind and gracious she is, and everyone ends up loving her, and that's why they stayed. Um, If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, again, my name is Micah. Uh, Most Sundays, you can find me here behind the soundboard, Um, so if you look back, I'm usually hanging out back there. Um, I'm super excited to have an opportunity to preach this morning. I will confess that it has been quite some time since I've had the opportunity to preach. So for your sake and for mine, I want to say a quick prayer and ask for God's help as we begin. God, as we have just sang, we ask uh, this morning that you would give all of us ears to hear and eyes to see that your word would be planted deep down inside of us, that it may transform our hearts and our lives to live a life of faithful obedience to you. God, in this uh, next few moments, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's an old adage that asks the question of how do you get men to build a boat? Do you teach them how to cut down the trees and mill the wood and fashion the hull together? No, you tell them the stories of the sea, and then the carpentry will come. That's the idea here today, that good stories shape our values, which ultimately shape everything that we do. We can actually see this truth everywhere, even in our world and our culture. 
couple of examples, uh, an author of some great books, her name is Lisa Crone, she writes on this topic. And if you have a chance, if you're into TED Talks, she has a few out there. They're great to listen to, very provocative. But her theory is that the basic human distinction is that we as creatures are wired for stories. And she says that all of our decisions are based upon the stories that we believe because we actually make our decisions based on our emotions and not based upon reason as we often think. One example of this in my job, I work for a large financial company. This is being recorded, so I'm not sure I can say who. Um, but they, when they, I just recently moved into a sales role within this company. And when we go out and we try to sell our services to a client, we have to tell a compelling story. Now, our company is maybe a li little bit biasly the best in the industry, and our statistics can blow anyone else out of the water. But if we go before a client and we literally just list our statistics without telling any story, we will lose every single deal. Our clients need to feel and know with their emotions that they can trust us because we care about them. And statistics don't do it. We have to tell stories with our data in order to win business. And this is happening all across the industry. It's because people don't make decisions based off of pure rationality and reason alone. We do it based off of our emotions, and stories help us tap into those emotions. And what we believe, what stories we tell ourselves, what stories we listen to, actually flows out into the actions that we take, all the decisions that we make. I want to pause for a second before we jump into our text today just to talk about where we are in the book of Exodus because this is a major transition point for the book. You can divide the book easily into three main parts. Part one is Israel in Egypt. We just talked about all of that uh, through the last time of the, the plagues and the Passover event. Um, so that's chapters 1 through chapter 13, verse 16. Today, we're starting part 2, which is Israel in the wilderness, which is chapters 13, verse 17 through chapter 18. And then part 3 is Israel at Mount Sinai. And they actually hang out at Mount Sinai for the rest of the book, chapters 19 through verse 40. So we're here in a key transition part for the book, moving into the wilderness. If we reflect on that, the Israelites then have been living as servants in Egypt for 430 years. And the Bible, at least, does not record any stories from God during that time. So the Israelites have learned to value serving Pharaoh rather than worshiping God. And we see that in the passage we just read in Exodus 14:12, where they said, Why have you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Isn't it better to go back and serve Pharaoh in Egypt than to die in the wilderness? Their values were not being free to worship God, but were to serving Pharaoh. This is the heart of the showdown between God and Pharaoh in the chapters before, in the Passover and the plagues. One thing to note is that the Hebrew word for serve and worship is actually the same word. So in the early chapters of Exodus, the Israelites are tasked with serving Pharaoh, and he increases the burden of service upon them again and again. And we see that the problem is that Israel is serving Pharaoh and not serving God. And in the plague narratives, if you read through those, there's a repeated phrase in almost every single instance that says, God says, let my people go that they may worship or serve me. God is challenging Pharaoh and saying, this is a people that are to serve me, not to serve you. But now that Israel is free from Pharaoh, the question is, how will God get the people to worship and serve him instead? And just like the old adage, he's not going to teach them to chop down trees and mill the wood, but he is going to reveal to them his glory and salvation, and, they, and the worship will come. He's going to use stories. And the stories that we find in this wilderness narrative are today what we'll talk about, the Red Sea. Um, tomorrow, or, uh, next week, presumably, uh, whoever's preaching will go through the bitter waters, the manna from heaven, and the water from the rock. These are all famous stories that come up again and again throughout Scripture that play an integral part in forming the identity of the Israelite people. 
So the main idea that we're going to work through is that in the wilderness, Israel must now learn to trust God as their new king, and God will give the Israelites stories that will begin to shape them as a nation to serve and worship him. This idea of building identity is something that I'm going to come back to at the end, as I think it's incredibly important. But starting out, if you know anything about me, there are two things that I love. The first one is the Bible. So today, I hope you have your Bibles because we're going to use a lot of Bible. The second thing that I love, if you've ever seen me up here uh, having a chance to lead worship, is music. So I decided to combine those together for our sermon today a bit. And as I was preparing this sermon, I found that all of my points, the headings for my points, started sounding like tracks, title tracks to an album. And then I just ran with it. So I'm going to cover our passage today, Exodus 13:17 through 15:21 in three volumes, if you will. So if you remember when you got CDs and you could get three CDs in your little case, we got three volumes, and in each volume there's going to be track titles that will guide us through. Please pay attention to the sermon, but there are bonus points at the end if you're able to identify the correct tracks and artists. So you can come up to me afterward and let me know if you got them all. So volume one is a new king. This is uh, 1317 through 1415. And the first track we come across is a people with no name. And this is the first two uh, verses there in 17 and 18. This is where uh, Pharaoh let the people go. And it says, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. God said the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around towards the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness, and the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. This is interesting because all the things that Pharaoh was afraid of and feared in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, are the things that have happened now. He was afraid that Israel would multiply, which we read about in the early chapters of God's grace on them and multiplying them as a people. He, af- he was afraid that they would join with an enemy, which we now know that enemy is God himself, that they would fight against Israel, and that they would go up out of the land. So here, everything that Pharaoh sought to avoid has come true. So again, this is an indication that we're transitioning into a new section. It's interesting that it says Israel left in battle formation. Now, Israel did not have any weapons. They did not have any armor. They were not a nation prepared for war, but they're leaving in battle formation. That's uh, the, the reason they translate this battle formation is because they left in groups of 50, which was the unit of battle that was used during this time. Now, there are potentially many reasons why, why Israel did this. My thought is that Israel was leaving a little bit cocky. They were marching out of Israel like they had just defeated them in their own power and might. And God wanted to show them something different. They may have thought they were ready for battle, but God knew that they were not quite ready for battle. He says that's why he doesn't lead them by the road of the Philistines, though it would be much faster to get to Mount Sinai because he didn't want them to go to war. And the reason he didn't want them to go to war was because of the temptation to still go back to Egypt if that was an option. And again, we saw that clearly when they say, why'd you bring us out here to die? Let's just go back to Egypt to serve them. God needs to show Egypt as completely defeated so that there's no temptation to return to them to prepare Israel for what he's going to take them through. It's interesting that after this Red Sea event, Within the, the, the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible here, Israel, or Egypt, excuse me, is never mentioned again as a present threat or reality. It is only mentioned in memory. We actually don't see Israelite battling with Egypt again all the way until 1 Kings. So God wants to show them that he will fight their battles for them before they begin to take over and conquest in the Promised Land. And We obviously see that here at the Red Sea where God defeats Egypt, but we can also think of all number of battles throughout the scriptures where God shows that he is fighting for them. 
Next week, you'll see when they battle the Amalekites and Moses has to raise up his hands and hold them steady so that the Israelites can prevail. If his hands drop, they start to lose. And so Aaron and um, another uh, have to come up and hold his hands and support him. You can think of Jericho, where they're marching around a city and blow trumpets and the city falls. Or perhaps Gideon, where God whittles down the army to just a few men to defeat a powerful force. Again and again, God wants to show that he fights their battles for them. On to track two. We have ain't no grave. We have a strange verse here in uh, verse 19 of chapter 13. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath, saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. This may seem a little bit out of place in the narrative, um, bringing up this thing about Joseph's bones. But again, I think it serves as a clear link back to the end of Genesis, where these words are quoted again, word for word, to show that this is clearly the definitive time that God is closing the chapter on Israel's time in Egypt. I think it also serves as a very tangible reminder of God's promise, that he is fulfilling his promise for them right now. Back in Genesis, it actually says that Joseph was embalmed rather than buried. So the Egyptian practice of embalming, and he was put into a coffin. So this isn't just a bag of bones they're carrying around. They're carrying a whole coffin mummy with them. So it's a clear, visible, physical, tangible reminder of God fulfilling his promise. I don't have quite enough time to get into it, but I do just want to mention that there also is potential hints of a resurrection or afterlife overtones with this statement. Um, throughout the first five books of the Bible, and, and even through the Old Testament, really, there's always a little bit of a distinction between being buried with your fathers and going to Sheol, which is the Israelite conception of the afterlife. And there seems to be something going on here where it's, we're fulfilling Joseph getting back to the promised land where he can be buried with his father and this idea of that, this goodness of the afterlife in that, in that activity. Um, there's a lot to it. I just want to mention it because I think it's incredibly interesting. Uh, on to track three, mega popular hit, This God is on Fire. Verses 13, 20 to 22, God introduces himself to Israel as a pillar of cloud and fire. And I do want to pause here because fire serves a really important symbol throughout the book of Exodus. And I think I have some examples for us on the screen here to walk us through this. But it all starts back at the burning bush. So that's kind of the first time that the theme of fire is introduced in Exodus. And we see that fire serves as a symbol of the glory and the presence, the, the physical presence of God. And if we trace this throughout Exodus, we start at the burning bush. Now, there's a ton of debate on the symbolism of the burning bush, but I, I think there's a strong case to be made that the bush itself represents Israel and the fire, the presence of God. And when you read that account, it has a strange description of the fire, that the fire is coming from within the bush. And I think that's foreshadowing God's plan to dwell within his people. He's giving Moses a visible picture of his plan. This gets a little bit stronger as you, we move on to Israel's time at Mount Sinai and their building of the temple, because Mount Sinai actually serves as a template for the not the temple, the tabernacle. It serves as a template for the tabernacle in this way. The people of God, when they get to Mount Sinai, can only stand around the base of the mountain. A select few, the elders and priests, can go up kind of halfway and get a little closer. And then Moses alone can go to the top of the mountain where the full presence of God dwells. That's exactly what we see in the tabernacle. You have the outer courts, you have the inner holy place, and then you have the Holy of Holies. Remember, the burning bush is on Mount Sinai. God promises that he would bring the people back to this mountain to serve him. So the bush maybe is even that Holy of Holy place that Moses is standing on to, to foreshadow and anticipate the fulfilling of God's promise. The next one is the pillar of fire and cloud that we, we see here in this story. 
So here, the presence of God is no longer in the bush, but the presence of God is around his people, shall we say. It's still separate and distinct. It's set apart. The text says that the, the pillar of fire and cloud never left its place in front of them. So God is, his presence is leading them, but there's still this distinction between he is separate from his people, but it's getting closer. Next, once they do get to Mount Sinai in chapter 18, we see that the the pillar of fire and cloud descends over the mountain, and it's there that God speaks with Moses in the presence of all the people to give the instruction and the law to prepare them for living with God's presence. And again, we see here Moses is able to enter up himself into this presence, and it's hovering over the mountain, but the people can only dwell at the bottom. So again, we're getting closer. Finally, at the end of Exodus, we kind of see this fulfillment of what we've been waiting for. Very end, chapter 40, verse 34, it says, The the fire of cloud descends into the holy of holies, and God dwells within his people. That fulfillment we've been waiting for happens at the end of Exodus. God's presence becomes and dwells down with his people. Now, a bonus is if we extend this theme of fire even into the New Testament and we think about the next time we kind of see fire pop up, we see this at Pentecost when the tongues of fire come down and dwell on top of the disciples as they're filled by the Spirit. I think, again, showing that now God doesn't dwell within his people, God dwells in his people. Track four. Don't listen to your heart. In the passage we read, 14 verses 1 through uh, 14, we see that God makes a questionable military move. Now, I'm no military strategist, but I can even tell that this is a bad mistake. In verses 1 of 14, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of pi Hiathiroth between Migdal and the sea. You must camp in front of Balsaphon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say to the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. So the people are on their way to Mount Sinai, and then God says, oh, hold on. Why don't you go back a little bit? Put yourself boxed in between the wilderness with the sea at your back, And let's tempt Pharaoh to come out and see what happens. So, again, I'm not a military genius, but it sounds like a terrible move. He's putting Israel as a sitting duck right in the middle of the wilderness with no escape. However, I think throughout scriptures we can see that this is kind of God's M.O. I love the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, where it says, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. We see that Pharaoh takes the bait, obviously, and we read the description of the army that he is uh, putting together, which is a total overkill for the task at hand. He picks 600 of his best chariots, and then also the rest of the chariots in Israel, and puts his best officers in there, all to track down and hunt down a helpless, wandering people with no weapons. It's wholesale slaughter, right? He is overkill to come after the Israelites. And again, God is showing that even the strength, the strongest human strength, is no comparison to even God's weakness. Again, it shows us that God can turn anything even the wickedness of Pharaoh, into a revelation of his glory. I think that's what Paul is getting at in Romans 9, if you want to read that later. Um, We obviously see this displayed most clearly at the cross. We, uh, our first book that we went through as a church was in Philippians, if you remember the glorious Christ hymn back in Philippians 2. We see that at his weakest moment, at death on a cross, is when the greatest glory of Christ is revealed. This is how God operates. He wants to show that in the weakest of weak moments, he is the most glorious. Now, I do want to pause for one moment just to talk a bit about this uh, talk of hardening of hearts. Um, It 
definitely comes up as uh, a difficult text maybe to understand uh, what God is doing and why he would be doing this and, and how this interacts with us. So it is a challenge, but I, the way that I've come to understand this, and, and I wish I knew who I heard this from so I could cite them properly, but I will say this is not original to me. I'm just not sure who to uh, uh, attest this to. But they understand the hardening of heart as meaning an acceleration of something that has already been set to do. So, for instance, we could read this as Pharaoh is going to come after Israel at some point. God knows this. Pharaoh is not going to just let the people go as he said. At some point, he's going to wake up and realize, what have I done? I need to go track them down and, and correct this. So God putting Israel in this kind of lame duck position is just accelerating what Pharaoh has already set in his heart to do. Example of this is teaching a, a young child to walk. So any of you who've ever had kids or maybe you've helped out in childcare over there and you get to see these babies kind of learning to take their first steps, we as parents know one day they're going to walk, right? It's going to happen. But we try to accelerate it, and we stand them up and say, go for it. And we watch them fall, and they get hurt, and they got to build those muscles. We know they are eventually going to walk, but we try to accelerate that growth in them by moving them through, even if it's them falling down and getting hurt, because we know what's eventually coming. God knows the purposes and the plans of the hearts of men, and so he can orchestrate things, not that he's causing Pharaoh to come after Israel, but he knows Pharaoh will do this, and he's going to cause him to do it quicker and in a glorious way that he can use Pharaoh's wickedness to reveal his own glory and his own strength. Also, there's a, a little bit of a challenge here with, you know, the violence that God shows against Egypt. This is another challenge that people have with scriptures, especially reading through the Old Testament and seeing some of the the violent actions, as it were, that God takes against people. And, you know, there are many ways that we could talk about this, but at least in this passage, um, I think this understanding of the hardening of hearts helps us here, that it makes it clear that Pharaoh is not going to just give up until the Israelites are dead. So God needs to take action to protect his people. Also, here we see that this is a fair fight, right? As opposed to Pharaoh in the beginning of Exodus 1, who is throwing innocent children into the Nile to control a people, God lets Pharaoh bring out his whole army, the best that he's got, to say, all right, this is a fair fight. You get to use your full strength against my full strength. May the best man win. Finally, the Bible does make it clear that there is judgment for evil especially evil that is committed against oppressed and vulnerable people. God, God will judge when we are, we are bringing evil into this world, especially if we are bringing evil against those who are vulnerable. So judgment is going to happen. And I think that it sometimes may be a tough pill to swallow when we read it in stories like this, but we have to keep that in our minds as we do so. Finally, <clears throat> In this last track, um, we see at the end of this passage that Moses stands up and says to the people, don't be afraid, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. It's interesting to note that do not be afraid, or some form of that, is the most common command that we find in Scripture. Perhaps this means something that fear is our most common underlying disposition when we are not trusting God. And perhaps, if you're at a loss of words to say when someone is struggling or going through a hard time, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation is a word that we can offer to them. Now, I've always struggled a little bit with this language because at the same time, do not be afraid is the most common command. We also see that God commands us to fear God, to fear Him. So how do we how do we marry those two? How do we understand those two? Now, this is something I'm personally still working with, so if somebody has a better argument out there, I'm, I'm all ears. But the way that I've kind of come to understand this, because I've never been quite satisfied with 
saying that fear in the Bible, when it's referring to anything other than God, is fear. But then when it's referring to God, it's something different, like awe or reverence. Uh, Certainly, awe or reverence are what we do owe to God. But I've never quite been satisfied that we use the same word for two different things. So the way that I've come to understand this is that when we fear God, it rightly dispels all the other fears that we have throughout the world. And then, when we encounter God, we are surprised to find that God actually commands us to not be afraid. And we see this anytime a person is introduced to the presence of God in a dream, in a vision, the prophets, John in Revelation, they see God and they fall down in dread. And God reaches out and says, do not be afraid. It's kind of a grace To fear God rightly means that we don't have to live in fear of everything else in the world. And then when we get to God, he's actually like, don't be afraid. I am good. The Israelites were more afraid of dying than of God. And then when they feared God and followed him through the sea, they found salvation. And that's volume two. Volume 2, verses, uh, chapter 14, verse 15 through 1431. Volume 2, An Unexpected Salvation. Our first track is Don't Go Chasing Israelites. Now, <clears throat> this is a common story uh, that many people uh, are probably very familiar with, something that we've heard again and again if you've been in church. God makes a path through the sea of dry ground for the Israelites to walk through to safety. And behind them, Egypt comes with their hardened hearts to chase after them, and the sea crashes back over them, and they're drowned. Now, we've talked a little bit about fire as a theme in Exodus. I also want to talk about water as a theme in Scripture because it's important for our understanding of what's going on in this passage and why God chooses to redeem Israel and save them in the way that he does. So just a few examples to get a picture here. Water in the ancient Near East context that Israel is living in at this time, water is a symbol for chaos and death. We can see this clearly in Genesis 1 where God creates the world before there's any order, any life, The world is covered in water, chaos, and death. There's no order, no life, and God clears the water to make life and order. We also see this in the story of Noah's Ark. Waters cover the world to destroy everything. And we see this in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh uses the Nile, uses the water of the river to kill the babies. Now, isn't it amazing irony that Pharaoh himself ends up drowning in water? So water is a symbol of chaos and death. And therefore, dividing of water by spirit or by wind, again, the same word in Hebrew, is a symbol of creation or new creation in the scriptures. If we take those same examples, Genesis 1, God divides the water from dry land to make creation. Noah's Ark, God removes the divide of the waters from the sky so the deluge comes down so that he can clear the earth and make a new creation. I think in our times, this is a beautiful thing for us to consider as we think about baptism. We go into the water as death, and then we divide the water as we come back out as a new creation. So, If we pause then to think of the full picture that's going on here, God is bringing Israel through the Red Sea. This is an event that he's doing. We can talk about he divides the water, the wind that comes through, but I think we need to also look at it as more of a theological point. We get the full picture here. The fire of God, which represents his presence and glory, encloses Israel in the front and the back. Water Death and chaos are on either side of them, on the right and the left, and they're passing through on dry land. God is recreating Israel as a people, bringing them through death by hiding them in himself. 
Now, if you're tracking with me, this is a, a description not only of Israel's salvation, but I think also one that points to our own salvation. Track two of this volume is Born Again in the SEA. And I want to jump to John chapter 3 to make this point. Before I do that, though, one thing to consider is this Red Sea event as Israel's origin story, if you will. Um, In the Red Sea event, this is the first time in Scripture that the word salvation, which is Yeshua, which is where we get Jesus, just dropping that there, uh, is used of a people. There is one reference in Genesis where Jacob in his blessing uses this word salvation of himself, but it's singular and it's a little bit of an odd reference. So this is the first time that salvation is used in the Bible of a people. Also, throughout the Old Testament, this references to the Red Sea event are numerous through multiple books. We have it in Deuteronomy and Joshua and 2 Samuel and Isaiah, multiple times throughout the Psalms. This story becomes kind of the definition, if you will, of salvation for the, for the Israelites, for the people of God. Now we get to John 3, and we have this another sort of famous encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus, and they have this conversation. Now, again, this is not original to me, um, but I am convinced that the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is a reference and an explanation to Nicodemus of the theological point that we see in the crossing of the Red Sea. A couple of hints that get me to this uh, point. At the very end of John chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. So he is in Jerusalem for Passover. Passover is happening. It's fresh on the minds of everyone. If you remember last week, we just got out of Passover in in Exodus, and we're now moving to the Red Sea. So we're in the season of Passover, if you will. Again, the conversation happens at night. It says a, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, came to him at night and said, Now, if you have time, go back and read the Passover event and read through the Red Sea event again and try to count how many times the word night is mentioned. It's an absurd amount. So when he's using coming at night, I think what is happening is is John, the author of John, is making this point, hey, getting you in the mindset of Passover and Exodus. Um, the uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus because of signs being performed. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who is from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Again, all the signs that Moses and God performed during the plagues that led to the Passover and to the Exodus event. Nicodemus, again, is, is approaching God because of the, or approaching Jesus because of the signs. Um, There's also a reference here to salvation by wind, spirit, and water. Jesus says to him, Truly, uh, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So here we have a reference to salvation by water and spirit. He also, this to me is the big one, he tells Nicodemus that he should know this teaching as the teacher of Israel, meaning there is something in Israel's history, in Israel's scripture, that Nicodemus should know as a teacher of Israel to know this truth. He he says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? So it can't be something new that Jesus is doing that, that hasn't been revealed yet. It has to be something that has its foundation in the Old Testament. Uh, Finally, he gives the example of Moses in the wilderness uh, later in verse 3, he talks about just as Moses was lifted up, uh, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So there, he's kind of already in this mode of tying it back to Moses. And lastly, this is the famous passage where it says that uh, God sent his only Son into the world. And we see this as kind of a reversal of Passover, if you will, where God is not requiring the Son, but he is giving his own Son for his people. So I think all of these hints are pointing us that that Jesus here is referencing 
the, the Exodus and the Red Sea event in particular. Okay, so what does all that mean? What's the point here that we're trying to make? I think that what is happening is Nicodemus is representing a belief in Jesus' day that the teaching of the Old Testament is that salvation belonged to the Jews by nature of their physical birth. That's why Jesus has this conversation of being born of the flesh versus being born of the Spirit. And what Jesus is saying is that salvation does not come through earthly birth, being an Israelite, but by a heavenly birth from above. The birth is one that is from God, Spirit, through death, water. However, the death is not ours, it's Jesus's. And just like at the Red Sea, we can now pass safely through death by believing and trusting in him. This is how we enter the kingdom of God. All right, on to volume three. A glorious story. This is uh, all of, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. This is the great uh, song of Moses, as it's called. Um, it is a, a retelling of the Exodus event through the song of Moses. And rather than going through and, and pulling out individual points, I want to, similar to thinking of the Red Sea event theologically, I want to think of this one from the angle of a story that we started our time with. First, track one, anything you can do. This is uh, 15, 20, and 21. I want to just pause here to call this out because I think it's important. At the very end of this song that's sung, we have these verses that says, Then the prophetess Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women came out following her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. Now, most commentators believe that this is an indication that uh, this song that they're singing is an antiphonal song. It's a call and response. Moses sings, Miriam, the women are responding, which I think is perfectly logical and, and most likely true. I also think, though, that it's pointing to Miriam as a bit of an innovator, we could say. Ironically, this is the very first worship service in the Bible. This is the first song that we find in the scriptures. It's a bit strange because they're doing it at the uh, feet of, of dead Egyptians, uh, washed up on the shore, but they're singing this song. This is the first time that they are using music to praise God in the scriptures. Now, certainly they probably in real life sang, but this is the first recording that we have of it. And I kind of want to think that Miriam, as uh, the older sister of Moses, takes this opportunity to, to one-up Moses a little bit, if you will. Moses gets to sing, and then Miriam's like, all right, Moses, I'm going to break out my tambourines. We're going we're gonna to get a little music up in here, and we're going to really praise God. So I think she's, she's perhaps even innovating a bit here and bringing in instruments to this worship service. Also, it uses this, uh, you know, description of Miriam the prophetess. Uh, this is a, a fascinating um, idea within the scriptures. Aaron brought this up in one of his sermons earlier um, of the role of women in Exodus 1 through 15. Um, if you recall, while Moses certainly is the hero of the story of Exodus, it, by my count, there's at least five times he would have died before even returning to eat to Egypt without the specific actions of women. And uh, in her new book, uh, Amy Bird, an author, her new book is called The Sexual Reformation. She has a chapter at the end that dives into this idea of the role of prophetess within Scripture. And it's this idea that the Bible is predominantly a story that flows through men, but there are these breaks and moments in the Scripture uh, where we focus in on the stories of women. And God uses that almost as a, like, peeling back of the curtains to show this behind-the-scenes work of what is really going on and what God is doing. And it's a fascinating to think through this if you think through uh, the story of Rahab, 
who through her uh, obedience and, and hiding of the spies, she gets into Jesus's lineage. The story of Ruth, who through her persistence uh, and grace and uh, willingness to follow Naomi back into Israel, also finds herself into the, the line of Jesus. Esther, who boldly approaches the king and saves the people of Israel. We have Hannah, who offers a beautiful song before the Lord at the temple, asking for a child who ultimately becomes a great uh, high priest. We have Elizabeth and Mary in the New Testament. We have the woman at the well. We have Mary Magdalene. We have all these moments where God is intentionally revealing his story through women. I, all this I want to just say is that the actions and the voices of women are necessary for us to find the full glorious story of God. And I think our church, not our church and specifically, the church at, at large, has done a poor job at reflecting that in our, in our churches. We need to uh, elevate and amplify what God is doing through both men and women. Track two. Aaron, this one's for you. I couldn't resist. We don't talk about Pharaoh. No, no, no. Um, this is encompassing the whole song here, and in my estimation, the song's two most important lines that I want to pull out is where it says that, um, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Uh, that's the translation. What it literally means, and I love this, is that God is gloriously glorious. I think that's just great. Um, and the second is the other one that we read where it says, Lord, who is like you among the gods? The point here is that this story is teaching Israel that God is gloriously glorious and is teaching the world that there is no God like the God of Israel. Remember Chad when he brought us through the plagues? Kudos to you, Chad, for doing all of the plagues in one sermon. Spectacular. Uh, but he brought out for us how all of these plagues were a clear polemic against the gods of Egypt. God is showing that there is no God like him. And I love in this song how it even says, um, when the people hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Again, this is showing that all these other people that the Israelites have yet to encounter will hear this story. And we, when we read through the scriptures, we see this. They hear the story of what God did for Israel and Egypt, and they tremble as they approach them because they know that, that there is no God like their gods who can do this marvelous thing. Now, again, I want to focus on this idea of story and building identity and why do we need stories like this? I first heard this from a Methodist theologian named Leonard Sweet, and he claimed that only a story can shape our identity. I didn't quite understand it at the time, but I hate to admit this, I love watching reality cooking TV shows, okay? And no matter what anybody tells you, Top Chef is the best, okay? Yes, amen. Um, and I was watching that, and, I was, and it kind of just clicked for me, because as you watch any reality show, really, they have these moments, right, where they pan away from the action going on, and you get to interview with the contestant, and they tell you about their life and why they're doing what they're doing. And I started to realize that all these people were there doing this insane cooking challenge because of some story that they were believing about their past. Maybe it was they didn't have their parents' approval and now they need to come on this show and win to prove them wrong, that it was all worth it. Or maybe it was spending Sunday afternoons cooking in the kitchen with grandma, and I loved it, and it just, this love for food and family it brought us together. It's, these stories were defining their identity as a chef, or whatever reality show you want to apply that to. And it started to click for me that it's so true that stories have a unique capacity to form and shape our identity. Uh, another uh, time I heard about this that was, was very interesting is uh, at High Point University down the road here in North Carolina, there's a professor, Amanda Mbovi, and she has a thesis that states that the main genre of the Bible is what she calls identity formation. 
very interesting, and, and she compares the stories of Scripture to a more modern um, uh, line of, of study, which is like family stories. So looking at how stories within a family shape that family's culture, she compares that back then to stories in scriptures and finds a ton of overlap, which leads her to say that what God is doing through these stories is he's trying to shape and form our identity as a family, as a people that belong to God. Um, I think this is incredibly important because I believe that we have an identity crisis on our hands. We have an identity crisis in our church. Again, not our church, in the church. Uh, And we have an identity crisis in our culture. In the church, we see that young adults are leaving the church in droves because they no longer identify with the religious culture of their parents. In many places of the church today, we see that political identity and religious identity have become so blurred that they are sometimes indistinguishable. In the world, we have gender identity, where more and more people feel like their internal identity and orientation doesn't match their external biology. And as Chad talked about, um, I think it might have been two weeks ago now, kind of a personal identity crisis, where more and more people are ruled in their lives by depression and anxiety. And I think part of the problem is because we have been missing out on this power of story. By way of example, a lot of times the way that we tell our gospel story is in a set of presuppositions rather than in a story. Now, I don't want to knock on any sort of evangelistic tools that you may love, but just by way of example, you could have, say, the Romans Road, where we are just walking through a set of truths to, to identify with someone, and we're not telling a story of God's glory. And this is effective at getting decisions, but it's not particularly effective in my estimation of making disciples. It turns the gospel into more of a transaction rather than a transformation. And at the end of the day, the world is telling way better stories than we are. There's a recent article in the Dallas Star uh, that made this point very compelling. In the public square, he argued that Christians who are trying to impose our social views onto the society at large are doing a terrible job at captivating the uh, imaginations of people with stories of who God is and the life that we should live. We're trying to just rationally and logically argue for our positions, and people are not buying it. And the world is telling incredible stories. You can think of any number of, of examples of, of uh, companies embedding these stories into superhero movies or even Disney movies now. And I'm not trying to knock on any of those things, but they are, uh, they are doing an incredible job at telling the story for people to believe in the society in captivating and imaginative ways. And we have fallen far behind on that. I'm not saying that we need to go make up some story. The story we have is incredible. In, in chapter 15 here, it's an amazing story. We don't have to make it up. We just have to tell it in a compelling way. And we need to get off of these set of presuppositions. Uh, secondly, a lot of times the way that we talk is that we have no real roots in the Old Testament stories when we talk about our gospel. Most gospel presentations I'm aware of jump straight from Genesis 3 to Jesus, and leaves out a whole big chunk of the Bible. This would be inconceivable for Jesus himself, for Paul, and the other New Testament authors. Read the New Testament. It is full of the Old Testament, and it's full of those stories to explain why Jesus is who he is, what he has done, and what it means for us. We are missing out on these family stories that shape our identity as the people of God. We are good at modifying behaviors. We're bad at shaping identity. Lastly, stories help us learn to trust God. I talked about at the beginning that we make our decisions off of emotion rather than reason. 
And stories help us tap into those emotions in a way that reason can't. We can place ourselves in the story of Israel and we can feel what they're feeling. We can walk around within their world and we can learn to trust God. Notice how this story in 15, the song, how it's a little different compared to chapter 14. It's not the east wind that's blowing. It's a blast from God's nostrils. It's not the muddy ground that mucks up the chariots. It's God's hand causing the earth to swallow them. Every moment is clearly attributed to God's direct action. I learned this through my father-in-law, through Ozelia's dad. Uh, if you get a chance to hang out with Ozelia's dad or family at any point, I encourage you to do so because they are awesome at telling stories. They have so many great stories to talk about how God has worked in their life. One example, Ozelia and I, early on in our marriage, we, I think we had just had our first kid, we were really, really struggling financially. And her dad was over sitting at our kitchen table, and we just laid it all out there. We're so, we're struggling. We're not going to make it. It's so stressful. What are we going to do? And her dad just gently told us a story of a time that he was in the Amazon jungle preparing to go to the mission field. He had no money, and he would wake up each morning. He would go out to the Amazon river. He would fish, and whatever he caught, that was the food they had. That's how he survived. Now, he could have told that story a bunch of ways. He could have said, look, I'm a great fisherman. This is what I did. You need to find yourself a job that will provide for your family. Or he could have said, we lived right by the Amazon River. It's full of life and resources. You need to go somewhere where you have friends and family and resources who can support you through this time. But he didn't. He said, God provided for me in that season. He was building in us an identity of God can be trusted to provide for you through that story. And it, it made way more difference to us than if he had just said, you can trust God. The story empowered us and emboldened us and spoke to our emotions. We could, we could picture that. We're not living in the Amazon jungle fishing day to day. We had more than we did, and God took care of, of her dad in that situation. Surely he can take care of us. Finally, God's presence is not a delight until we trust him. The people are about to encounter God's presence in a whole new way. We talked about this through the theme of fire, that God's presence was getting nearer and nearer and nearer to the people. And they didn't trust him right now. And you can't delight in something that you don't trust in. An example of this, when our, my kids were little, I would throw them up in the air and catch them, and they would love it because they trusted me. If I walked out to that playground there to a random child and threw him in the air— he would be terrified, rightly so. I didn't change. I'm still trustworthy. My hands are steady. But that kid doesn't know that, and it's terrifying to him. But my child in my hands, it's delight. They love it. That's what, it, that's what God is working towards, that you, Israel, need to learn to trust me because when you get to my presence, if you don't trust me, it's not going to be a delight. So tying this all together as we close, just like in Exodus, all of our history is moving towards a time when God, in his fullness, will dwell with his people. And just like in Exodus, the way to this glorious future lies through death and rebirth, through a new creation by the Spirit and power of God. And just as in Exodus, we too can trust God and follow him, laying down our lives that he would become our salvation. And just like Moses sang, God will bring us and plant us on his holy mountain, the place prepared for our dwelling, where the Lord will reign forever and ever. What else is there like our God? Someday your money will run out. Someday you will have no more influence and people will forget your name. Someday your bones will be brittle, your muscles weak. Someday your beauty will fade. Someday your mind will struggle to even remember the most basic things. Someday your family and friends will pass away. Someday you will pass away. No matter what pleasures you find in this life, either it or you will someday pass away. But God is eternal, and in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand 
our pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. God, we thank you that through this story, you can teach us so many things. But not just teach us, Lord, you can shape us into a people who trust you, who love you, who know your goodness. We pray, God, that like Nicodemus, we would learn that our salvation is born from above. God, that you have worked gloriously to save us, that you have sent your son to die, that we may pass safely through death into an eternal presence and future with you. God, there is no one like you on this world. May we be reminded of that, may we marvel in that, and may we worship you in the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.